You are listening to the Awaken Natchitoches podcast. Awaken Church is a diverse community of authentic love and hope where you can belong as you change and change as you follow Jesus. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch for, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight years old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count my own righteousness, though obeying the law, rather I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way is of us making us right with him depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one may, one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things, or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Jesus Christ is calling us. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. We ask that the Lord would direct us as we dig deeper into this passage this morning. From Philippians chapter 3, we thank Lexi for reading that for us this morning. Um, Good stuff thinking of that passage and he talks about all his um all the things that he'd done in the past and we'll get into that in just a minute but i was thinking about this movie have you seen the lion king yet the new the one the, like the remake that just came out just released nobody seen it? i hadn't seen it yet either but i gotta say i'm excited i want to see it because the lion king is one of and i'm hard pressed to say it's not my favorite movie of all time but it's one of my favorite movies Ever the Lion King, like the original thing, and the story of the Lion King, and you're probably familiar with it, is about Simba, and he's a little little cub, and his father's Mufasa, and his and Mufasa's the king, and he gets basically 
killed trying to save Simba, and it's actually also a setup from Scar, who is the, the evil uncle, he, and he was going, he's the one, he wants the throne, right? And so when, when uh, Mufasa dies, Simba has got all of this lineage. He's the son of the king. He's been shown everything the light touches and say, Simba, that'll be yours. And he's got, he's got all this lineage, all these things about him, yet he's still just so young. And when he goes to Uncle Scar, Uncle Scar was actually kind of hoping both Mufasa and Simba would be killed, so he could automatically get the throne. But now Simba is the heir to the throne, so Scar changes his perspective by lying to him and making it seem to Simba like it's all his fault. He's very impressionable and his perspective changes and he sees that it's all his fault that Mufasa's gone and now he's gonna, he runs away, right? He runs away from home. He's got this perspective on life, like everything's his fault. He's all alone in this world. Then he gets a new perspective when he meets a couple of crazy cats out, in the, out there in the jungle and his new perspective is Hakuna Matata, right? Hakuna Matata. And then, he goes on through life and he gets this, he meets Nala, reacquainted with his cubhood, childhood sweetheart, who basically tells him everything has happened in the land and his perspective again changes. He gets another different perspective on things and he realizes Uncle Scar had lied to him and had tricked him and he goes on. And the thing is, at the beginning, not only was he, he was like young and immature, but, but he had blind spots. And we all have blind spots, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like areas of our lives where we don't really see things with our perspective. And many times our blind spots get pointed out when somebody else uh, points them out to us. Like somebody else will speak into our lives and help us see something about ourselves or about our attitude or maybe how we see life that we didn't see before. Blind spots. So we all have them from time to time. Now, help me out real quick. Talk, to, talk back to me here. What are, some, what are some areas in life where you think people seem to have blind spots? Work. Work, okay? At work. Like you can, you can, you can be doing a, a job. You think you're doing an adequate job, but not so much. If somebody else, like that's what a supervisor's for. Hey, let's try it this way to kind of get you kept with those blind spots. Good. What else? Yourself, yeah, just yourself. The way you see life, the way you think about things, definitely. Sometimes relationships. That's the one I've seen a lot. Is like the girl's going with a guy who's a player, but she don't see it. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, I, and I've seen the other way too. Like the, the guy's with a girl and she's a player, and he's just like, well, you know, she's my girl. She's like, he's my guy, and he's my guy. And he's my guy. So, you know, that happens. Blind spot. Anything else? Other, other places where we may have blind spots? Family. Family, yeah. What else? Okay. Other people's opinions. We could, we could definitely do that. So we're... Perception. Or what? Perception. perception, yeah. The way we see things. Absolutely. We're going to get deeper into that perception uh, kind of as we go through this. And this is week three. Uh, of this series we're going through this ancient letter is found in the Bible called Philippians. And it's called Philippians because it's written to a bunch of Jesus followers who lived in a place called Philippi. So they were called Philippians. So and he and we're hitting some high points as we go through this whole book. And we got today and next week we'll wrap it up with chapter four. Um, and as we do this we're seeing that we're asking that God can change our perspective and our perceptions by using his word, by using scripture and, and using it to help us see how we do life from his perspective. So Philippians is written, again, just as a reminder, uh, for, by this follower of Jesus named Paul. He wrote a bunch of letters that make up most of what we call the New Testament. And it was written about 52 A.D., 
which is less than 20 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. Like, no, it was written in 62. A.D. 52 was when the church was planted in Philippi. So less than 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. There's all these people out there like, how could you believe something that's written hundreds of years after? This is actually written about 30 years after. The church was planted 20 years after the resurrection, crucifixion, and then another 10 years later, 62 A.D., this letter's written. And so and we're finding, at least I have been finding, as we've been kind of going through this together the last few weeks, the words he writes to them 2,000-something years ago still apply to my life and still apply to us as a church as well. <clears throat> so um, we're talking, we're using this idea of the panorama. And there should be a picture, Christian, maybe you can put it up. I don't know if it's there. I hadn't looked. But there's a picture of a panorama. There you go. That's the riverfront. It's a panorama picture of about three years ago when we first moved here, the riverfront of uh, Natchitoches. Um, now you can tell it's different now because now there's an amphitheater and a river walk and all some cool stuff down there. But this is like what we're looking at here. Panorama means a broader view, a wider view. It's like you don't just see what's right in front of you. You get to see what's on, way over there and way over there in one picture. And so we're using this idea that God would give us, through Philippians, a broader view of our lives. So it will give us a different way of thinking and a new way of living. And so Philippians, what we find as we read this, God had placed Paul in the lives of these people in Philippi to give them a new perspective. Like he writes this letter to help give them a new perspective. And here we are in, you know, today, 2019, still getting a new perspective as we read these words. So here's our big idea. God places others in our lives to give us a new perspective so that we can be more like Jesus. And on that big idea, we're going to build this foundation. And the first thing I want to kind of thought I want to kind of spend some time in is this. What you experience determines what you see. What you experience determines what you see. I my experience in junior high and high school was in football. I mean, I played football, and I played for Woodlawn Junior High in, in West Monroe, Louisiana, and West Monroe High School, West Monroe Rebels, and we had you know state champions and all that. Not when I played, we weren't state champions, but later on became this famous football school. And um, one thing I remember vividly was that there was referees would miss calls. And I remember in junior high, and I was in the eighth grade playing football against our rival team, and the referees weren't calling us. I played defense. I was either a defensive tackle or a linebacker, and I'm trying to make sacks and, and, and tackles and, and whatever. And there's no, and they're holding us like crazy. I mean, they were, it was like every play, they were holding, the offensive line had us on holding. And the referees weren't ever calling it. And I was getting madder and madder. The whole team's getting madder and madder. Finally, they scored this big play. I mean, it was a big play. And I mean, these guys, basically, a couple of offensive guards had tackled some of us. That's, that's like the worst holding. You can't just tackle defensive players. And this guy, gets, I don't remember the names, but I remember him saying, that guy was holding me. Can't you see him? And I turned around and I looked at the referee and I looked at my friend and I was like, they can't see nothing. And they threw the flag on me and got unsportsmanlike conduct on me. I got unsportsmanlike conduct. And the coach was mad. My dad was mad. He's like, he's a preacher's kid out there getting unsportsmanlike conduct. And I'm like, I just, I didn't say, here's what I said. And I told the coach what I said. And he's like, oh. All right. And like, that was not even a big deal. And, and I, you know, those kind of things. I remember in high school, there was a play, I was on the, the punt team. So I was there to, if they caught the punt, I was supposed to nail them. I liked, I liked playing defense. I liked nailing them. <laughs> I, I played linebacker. And so I'm going down, and I don't even see who hit me. 
Somebody hits me square in the back and knocks the wind. I mean, I'm not expecting it. Knocks the wind out of me. I hit the ground, and I'm just like, can't breathe there for just a minute. And I'm on the ground, and the play's going. There's no flag. There's no whistle. There's not even a referee going, hey, kid, are you okay? I'm like, you know, 17-year-old football player laying on the field, been hit. The illegal, it's called clipping, by the way. Clipping, I've been hit in the back, and I'm down on the field like, ugh. And I'm like, so now, because of that experience, I'm highly aware of missed calls and bad calls on the football field. So when I'm watching a game, and I see something like this, did I have that picture? And I see this, I'm going to tell you what. You don't even have to have the experience I had to know that was a bad call. Everybody knows, right? John, John was at my house. We were watching it together when it happened live. Woo! John had to leave. (laughs) He's like, Pastor, see if I got to (laughs) leave. It was bad. But I see these things. And and, and so because of my experience, I see them all the time. And somebody say, well, there's bad calls on every side. Absolutely. I see them all. And they just miss them. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> Pastor Steve brought it up again. We just got over. Yeah. We're not salty at all. <laughs> right? Right? So your experience determines what you see. Now, my wife has a different experience. She loves football. She grew up watching football too. But in her home, she had to move this environment. It's a very kind of crafty, DIY, repurpose this for that environment. I remember when we were dating, she took this jacket, this jean jacket. This is the 80s. She did this, this jean jacket, denim and cut off some of it and took a little piece of material over here and some lace over here and made a skirt out of a piece of a jacket, some, some stuff, and, a, and some lace. And I'm like, I like this girl. <laughs> it's a pretty hot skirt, too, I just got to say. You know, but I'm like, this is, this is the kind of thing she does. Like, we're a few years ago, we're at dinner, and she just has this look in, like this, this look in her life. She's in deep thought. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. I'm like, Shelly, what are you thinking about? I have no idea. I mean, really, I have no idea what women think, not even my own wife. And so I'm thinking it's probably something like she's thinking some romantic thing because we're in this nice dinner, just she and I, and it's, you know, nice environment. She's like, I'm designing a new lampshade. What? She's like, I'm in my head. I'm designing a new lampshade. And I'm like, what? Just that's her, what her experience determines what she sees. And when she walks into, a, she walks into a, play, a room or something, she can say, oh, this should be there and that could be there. And it would, be, it would really be different if they put this over there. Like she redid this whole wall in our house. And then she put up all these plates that she had on the wall before. Now she looks at it and goes, nope, those plates got to go. They don't fit. And I'm like, it's plates on a wall. I don't know. I don't know. So you, your, your experience determines what you see. For instance, another thing is I've been doing this. I've been in church my whole life. My dad was, I was a, basically a preacher's kid when I was born, and I've been basically in church my whole life, and I've been doing this for 21 years now. And so when I go into a church facility or church gathering or something, I kind of immediately start to see things and go, they could probably do this a little bit better, and they could be more effective at this. And I don't like, if I'm not invited to give advice, I don't. But I just start thinking, you know. And even like I think about Awaken. I'm like, if I walked in fresh to Awaken, probably the first thing I would notice is they really need to work on the, what they call the hype team at Awaken, which is the hospitality, like the, the, the greeting out front. Like the whole idea is like first impressions matter. And a lot of times our first impressions is people come to the wrong door because they don't know where to come first time. Um, you know, there's, you know there's, there's coffee and donuts, but... Most of the time, if they come a few minutes early, 
there's nobody standing there to greet them and stuff. So we're trying to work on that. We have occasionally we have you know Cole will be there sometimes and and uh, you know uh, Kevin's out there and I try to get out there if I can and just to greet people. But then again, church is going to start. Most people come right when church starts, and we could really use like a team leader that to kind of lead that thing and get a team together to actually like man the the coffee table and the and the, the greeting at the door those kind of things that would be what, one of my first things if i were to come to awaken and go man you could work this would be a great spot to to work on you ask me what happens if my car breaks down <laughs> i don't know i don't know i don't know i mean i know you need to you know you have somebody greeting people at the door at church but uh, my car's broken down i'm gonna call somebody that knows something about cars because i haven't had experience working with cars and that. So I see some things that others don't see, and you may see some things I don't see. That's a matter of perspective because we experience life differently, and what we experience determines what we see. So think about your own life for just a minute. What kind of things or situations have helped determine how you see things? Most of us said things like our childhood, right? Maybe a, maybe a a professor, a Sunday school teacher, we have that, that church answer quite a bit, uh, a teacher at school, or somebody just, a coach, somebody that invested in us usually. Hopefully it's parents, a lot of times it's grandparents or an auntie or an uncle or somebody. But Paul's story is amazing. We're going to like, I'm just going to tell you, in, in the book of Acts, which is this book in the New Testament that kind of gives how the, how the church got started from Jesus' resurrection uh, on for the next few years. And Acts chapter 9 gives this account of how Paul uh, began to follow Jesus. And he will talk about this every chance he gets. We'll find it several times in the scriptures. He talks about this. What happened was he was, he was not a follower of Christ. He was one of the Jewish leaders. Uh, he was an up-and-coming Jewish leader. He was a part of this denomination called the Pharisees. The Pharisees are very strict about the Torah, keeping the Torah, which are the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books of what we call the Old Testament. And that has all the law. And that was their thing. They, 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 like, they like hone in on keeping Torah. And he was one of the up-and-coming leaders in this. And there was this new group that had started out. Uh, we now call Christians, people who follow Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. Then they weren't called that. They were called the way. They just said, they're the way. Because they, they followed the way of Jesus. And he had gotten actually these letters from the, from the religious leaders of the synagogue, of, the, of the, the temple in Jerusalem, to arrest by any force necessary and bring back to put on trial anyone who was claiming Jesus was the Messiah and the resurrection happened. So he's on this road to Damascus, which is the place where he's going next to go arrest these people of the way. If he finds anybody talking about this Jesus who was resurrected and he's the Messiah, I have permission, I have written permission to arrest them by force that's necessary and bring them back to be put on trial. And he meets Jesus. Remember, Jesus has already been executed. He's already been crucified. Resurrection has happened, and he's like persecuting those who are saying the resurrection happened. And he meets Jesus on this road to Damascus, and he's like blinded by this bright light. And this voice speaks out, and he's like, his name's Saul. He has, he, later he changed to Paul, but now Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like blinded by this light. <coughs> he's, he, you know, if he's riding on a donkey, he's knocked off his donkey or whatever he's riding on. And he's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. Now, I want you to be my disciple. 
And he gives them like these instructions to do. And Paul's like, this is my story. This is my experience. And it's, it, has, it has helped develop and determine what I see and how I see things. And my perspective has been changed because of that meeting with Jesus. And I'm going to share it with others that he gives me to. What happened with Paul was he began to see things in a different way. He had an awakening. And because of what Paul experienced, he wanted to help these Philippians. These people that he loved. He wanted to help them see things they couldn't otherwise see. Blind spots. He says, it's verse 1 of chapter 3. I never get tired of telling you these things. I do it to safeguard your faith. See, I'm not here to beat you up and tear you down. I want to I help safeguard your faith. I want to help build you up, build up your faith. I never get tired of, of helping you see the blind spots that you have. So I think then, just as today, there are things that can derail our faith. And as Paul wanted them to see it, I think God wants us to see what are some things that could derail our faith. Because we do well to allow God to give us a new perspective and open our eyes to see the dangers that we may face. There's some dangers that if we will allow him to give us a different way of thinking and a different way of, of, of seeing things, he will show us. And we can see the danger in one thing is legalism. We can see the danger in, in legalism. My dad pastored a number, a few churches since I grew up, but one church he pastored was, it was like the biggest culture shock of my life, moving from West Monroe, Louisiana, to Kentucky, this little town, in, not, it wasn't even a city, it wasn't even a town, <laughs> it was a flashing, blinking light, and a little community where people lived, and you had to drive to another state to go to to Walmart, <laughs> I mean really, because it was across the river to this town in Ohio, and it was like this small town, culture shock. And so we begin part of this church. This is a neat little church. Great, beautiful, loving people. Beautiful, beautiful town. Beautiful place. But there was this one. We'd been there like less than a year. It was in a, in the summer, and they have what's called a bazaar, a church bazaar. So I see some of y'all like nodding your head. I didn't know what that was back then. I know I've never heard of it too much since then. But basically, it's like a flea market yard sale. But it's kind of like the, the ladies have made something. The ladies make these clothes and and jewelry and sometimes just food and they just open it up like to make a little money usually it's like a fundraiser for the ladies group or something it's a church bazaar and it's in the fellowship hall which is a separate building from the church main building so you got the church building with the the worship center the with the sanctuary and the offices over there and some classrooms then you've got over here fellowship hall and a couple of extra classrooms over here separate building it's on a saturday it's a bazaar it's in summer. It's in the fellowship hall. And I had to go up there to, to take my mom something. She goes, hey, bring me this something. And I take it up there. And I'm 17 years old, 18 years old. And I walk in and I'm wearing shorts. We don't wear shorts in church. I mean, that's what this lady told me. I thought this was a sweet grandma. She was like, we don't wear it. And she was, I may remember it different, but I, I felt a little like she was being mean, you know. Like, we don't wear shorts in the Lord's house. I'm like, I'm in the fellowship hall. It's sad. It's Saturday. You know? I'm like, so I, I do remember I said, well, I do. I, I got in trouble for that later. You know, you don't, you don't talk back to your elders that way. I know that now. But, you know, and so I was like, well, I do. I didn't know. And there was this, and, and I actually for a long time held this little, like, this is the worst church in the world. My dad moved us to this stupid place. This is like Footloose. And they can't, they, they don't care if we dance. They just can't wear shorts on Saturday in the fellowship hall. This is, I mean, I literally had a bad attitude about it. 
But it was because there was this legalistic attitude that was kind of put out there. And that can happen. What what are some things, like when you think about legalism, what could be the results of legalistic religion? What are some could be some results of that? Okay. Yeah. So you could get more focused on how people look or act, or mainly how they look, than are they walking in righteousness? Are they walking with Christ? Good. Anything else? Yeah. Right. And a lot of times, uh, what you're saying is, it'd be harder. It's really hard to seek and save the lost, which is the mission of the church, when you have this legalistic religious atmosphere, because in a really legalistic atmosphere, you're focused on the the rules. You're not focused on the lost or the mission. Yeah. Good point. Anything else? Any other things you could think of could be the results of uh, legalistic religion? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, judgmental. The church has been kind of labeled, all Christians are judgmental, and it's because there has been a lot of legalistic judgment in places. Yeah. It makes a lot of people have like a selfish attitude, like I'm following this, but you're not, so I'm better than you. Okay, yeah, it could give you the wrong kind of pride, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Paul writes, there's dangers that can derail your faith. And he says, watch out for those dogs. Did you guys catch that when when we read it earlier? Watch out for those dogs. So after the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension, the first Christians began to take the message to basically people who were Jewish by their faith and by their tradition and their culture. And this message is called gospel. Gospel just means good news. So, And this message is basically Jesus loves you and there is life in him. That's the message. That's actually the message why Paul, who wrote this from prison, was arrested for telling people, Jesus loves you and there's life in him. He's resurrected. So in Acts chapters 1 through 7, it begins to describe what happened as these Christians, these new Christians who were Jewish, began to take their message and spread it to other Jews, basically. They were the first followers of Jesus. Were all Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. They began to you know, reach others that were just like them, that were Jewish. Then by the time you get to Acts chapter 8, they had taken this message to Samaritans. Now Samaritans were uh, half Jewish, half Gentile. And there was actually, if we, if we really understand the New Testament and a lot of the teachings that Jesus gives, there's a lot of racial tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. This is the culture this happens in. And so as you look at this and go, well, these new Christians who are following Jesus, but they have this Jewish background, they begin to look at maybe the Samaritans and go, well, can they even do this? Because they're Samaritans. And it's like, well, they're, they're, half, they're half like us. So they could, I guess it might be possible they could be Christians. But when it comes to Gentiles, because Gentiles are people groups that have, they don't, they don't have the Torah. They don't have the law of God. They don't have, you know, they don't, they don't have the name of Yahweh as their God. They don't, they don't have the history of the prophets. Um, they don't have the, the, the knowledge of the covenant between God and the people of Israel. And so these leaders who are, had been strict Jewish abiding leaders who are now Jewish Christians, they would say, no way. They can't become Christians. Well, what they would have to do, they'd have to become Jewish first. They'd have to become just like us in order to become a Christian. That's what it boils down to. They gotta be like us. And one of the big arguments they had was 
circumcision. That's why Paul brings it up, circumcision. And they would say, can you imagine this? Like you're a grown man. <laughs> Come to Jesus and you got a scalpel in your hand. Come on. <laughs> All right, at the end of the worship gathering, right? It's like, all right, all you guys that want to give your life to Jesus, come on down to the altar. You got that scalpel in your hand. It's like, I, no way, man. That's just not happening. So they, they got in this big debate. And in Acts chapter, this is all in the Bible. In Acts chapter 15, they had this big conference because of this debate. And they decided that the Gentiles don't have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. They actually had to have a conference to make this decision, and they did. They, all the leaders got together and said, you know what? They don't have to become just like us to follow Jesus. All you need is Jesus to be right with God. And the good news just got even better. This is awesome. So now there's these folks. They're known as Judaizers who were still kind of lingering. Like they still were. Ju Judaism was the same thing as, as the Jewish faith. So they were trying to like these new Christians who were Gentiles. They really need to get the Jewish stuff right first. It was still, still part of their mix. And they were in Philippi. And they've been telling these people that in order to follow Jesus, you have to be circumcised. And Paul says, watch out for those dogs, which is actually a play on words and a jab at these Judaizers because these Jewish folks referred to Gentiles quite often as dogs. And Paul flips that script. And he says, watch out for those dogs. These are the ones you've got to watch out for. Watch out for the legalism. So what exactly is legalism? I think we understand what it is, but here's a definition I want us to, to make sure we understand. Because it's not that legalism means, oh, the rules, don't, the rules don't matter. Rules are good and they're there for a reason. Legalism is when rules have been substituted for the relationship. That's legalism. Substituting the rules for the relationship. They may be good rules. Biblical rules, Jewish rules, Baptist rules, Methodist rules, Catholic rules, non-denominational rules, whatever. Legalism is substituting any of our rules for a relationship with Jesus. We need the rules, but they cannot become our God. That's what happens. That's what legalism is. Instead of the relationship with Jesus being the main thing, the rules become the main thing. It's not about how well we follow the rules. It's not. Paul said we rely on Jesus Christ and put no confidence in human effort. It's not about how well we follow the rules. And Paul gives us this religious resume of his own. He said, because I know what it's like to follow the rules, right? He goes, I was circumcised on the, when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous, I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. This is like what legalism is. And he's like, I had all of that. I was legalistic, and I had all these, these things that were here, and I was following the rules. You know the Pharisees had 613 laws you had to follow, the Pharisee denomination, or the sect, S-E-C-T, sect of Pharisees. And in this, a lot of them had to do with the Sabbath. Because we know what the Sabbath, well, that's the Lord's day, or that's the day of, the day of rest. It literally means ceasing. Sabbath means to cease. But it was considered like it's the day to put aside and you shall do no work. And if you look at the Old Testament in the, in the, when it's originally given, it's like neither shall thy servant or thy servant's servant or thy donkey or thy camel. There should be no work done. So here's some three things that actually the Pharisees had that added to this to make sure you didn't accidentally work on the Sabbath. One is you can't eat an egg laid by a chicken on the Sabbath. Seriously, it's not in the Bible. It's in a se their separate rules that they had. And it's like, if a chicken laid an egg on the Sabbath, you can't eat that because the chicken worked. <laughs> it, seriously, if you get bit by a mosquito on the Sabbath, guess what? You better not scratch it. 
Because that's against the law. It's considered work to scratch that itch. You cannot see, look in reflective surface on the Sabbath day because you may see it, literally, you may see a gray hair and pluck it out. That's work. You cannot do it on the Sabbath. That's, that's what Paul says. I was a part of that legalistic system. That's who I was. Legalism. And we need to see the, the danger that may, we may fall into, the dangers of legalism. Legalism leads to two places, and we hit on those as we were talking. Shame and pride. Two different places. Shame or pride. You could be, there could be so much legalism, it's like, shame on you for wearing shorts on a Saturday in the fellowship hall at a church bazaar in the summer. Shame! Or it could lead to pride. I can't, I, I can't obey the law without fault. It could lead to either one of those places. Jesus came to set us free from shame and pride. He wants us to be free from both of these things. So we need this new perspective to see the dangers of legalism and another danger, uh, the danger of distractions. To see the danger of distractions. I am easily distracted. And um, I've trained like in, in about 30 minutes or 40 minutes on a Sunday, I can, I can not be distracted. Because there's like a couple weeks ago, there was this little guy he's here almost every two or three weeks his family comes he's running up through there and somebody was like it might have been Eric he's like man don't you get distracted by that I'm like no I see it and I, and I know what's happening but I've learned how to focus in this moment because I'm really I'm just a whole time going God you got to help me because Lord this sermon's awful unless you do something unless you speak so help me not be distracted but I have to work because of the setup of Awakened Church being a new church a church without a building and you guys know this, who are in the house. We meet at this movie theater every week. So for an office, I have a home office. And, it's, and if you've been to our home and seen the office, it's very open air. And I like that. I don't like closed up in rooms and stuff. So i got windows. I got, you know, there's two doorways, but they're big open. There's not even doors. It's just open, open space. And so typically, especially when school's in, in, in session, I'm able to get lots of work done because I can focus in that space. But for the whole summer, this summer specifically, has been super challenging because there's two little boys at home, and it's always a distraction. And the other day, I was just like getting into like, actually I actually think I was working on this very sermon, and I was actually thinking about distractions, and Niall comes in. And there's a, I gave her a picture to put on there. I said, yeah, I don't know how you can tell it. He comes in, he says, he's got this, this sponge in his hand. He says, Dad, I need a cup. I'm like, Okay. So I go in the kitchen, I get out a cup, and I put the cup down. He takes this sponge, he goes, I'm going to show you a magic trick. <laughs> <coughs> I'm in now. Okay, son. My seven-year-old with autism is going to show me a magic trick. I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch this. He puts the sponge in the cup. He goes, now I need a cup with water. All right. So I get him another cup. I fill it up with water. He takes that cup of water, pours it over the sponge in the other cup, and he reaches in, and he moves that sponge around a little bit and he pulls it out and that sponge has now got most of the water in it and he goes ta-da <laughs> he made the water disappear it was his magic I don't know where he got this from but it was a distraction but I'm okay with my kids wanting to show me something and, and being distracted my problem is I spent the next 30 minutes on my laptop going googling magic tricks for children now, well, now I want to I want to get some more magic tricks for now. Took me about thirty minutes to go. I got to work on this sermon. Get back to it. I look down. The danger of distractions. <laughs> Thanks, God. Thank you so much. 
Um, do you, I get easily distracted sometimes by things that don't matter. Do you ever get easily distracted sometimes? Things that don't, things that don't matter. That's the thing. That's the problem. Paul says, all this list I just gave you of my accomplishments, these religious accomplishments, that's all worthless. I mean, compared, compared to knowing Jesus, that's like a big distraction. All that legalistic stuff. He says, all of that, all those accomplishments I did, I had, it's worthless compared to knowing Jesus. They're just distractions. He says, for his sake, I've discarded everything else as garbage or rubbish. That's a very cool word here. If you go to the, this is originally written in Greek. And the word that translates as garbage or rubbish, and you may find it translated as dung, is the word scubalon. Let me say scubalon. Scubalon. It literally means dog poop. I mean, it's not just dung or excrement. It's literally dog poop. And it's like this word, it's, it's a very harsh word. And if you think, of how, what, what kind of word would this really translate to in our culture? It, we would, like, in our culture, you'd hear some th- things like, well, can't believe that just happened. Scoopalon happens, right? You'd say, that's the kind of word this is. That, that, <laughs> that's what it means. You're lying to me. You're full of scoopalon. You're full of scoopalon. Literally, that's what this word is. Like, and this bad stuff happens, the scoopalon just hit the fan. <laughs> this is the word. Oh. And that's a bunch of bull scubalon. That's This is the word. This is what it means. This is how harsh this is. He's, this is what it's like for me. All those accomplishments, those distractions, it's like scubalon compared to knowing Jesus. Woo, man, Paul, are you tracking with this? Because he's, he's pretty savage right now. Paul says these, they, they, all these things compared to knowing Jesus, scubalon. There's distractions, these distractions, and they're, they're pathetic. And remember... Paul is under arrest while he's writing this. He's on, awaiting a trial that could pronounce a death sentence, and he realizes life is short. I mean, he's like, this is really aware for him. Life is short. My life could be really, really short any moment. And the thing about that is, when you realize how short life is, all the distractions don't matter much anymore. And all of us, life is really short, you guys. You may have, I don't know, 50, 70, 80 more years. I'm 50, and I hope I've got 50 more years. But you don't know. Life is short. And when you realize how short life is, all the distractions don't matter much anymore, which is why I'm okay with my little boy coming in and saying, I want to show you a magic trick. So verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I'll even suffer for it. I'll even suffer for it. Everything else is scuba. Everything else is a distraction. So with this new perspective, we see the dangers of legalism, the dangers of, of distractions, and, and there's also the dangers that we can see of complacency. Complacency. I remember the first time I really heard this word in the context of church. I was a, we were attending a church that my friend was planting in, in Stillwater, Oklahoma. We were t- there just to kind of help him out for a little while. And I walked in. His name was Chuck. I love you, Chuck. Hey, Chuck, if you're watching this, I love you. Grit Church. We're praying for you. But Chuck says, or I say, hey, man, how you, how you been this week? How's it going? How you feel? He's like, eh, complacent. And I was like, complacent? What does that even mean? And it kind of, he, he kind of laughed a little bit. It's like, what does that even mean? He goes, well, complacent. You know, it's like, like, I'm okay with it. I mean, whatever it is, I mean, I'm just, I'm just here. I'm just, you know, I'm, we've come this far, and I'm kind of, I'm okay with it. And then he just, like, started to cry a little bit. He's like, I don't. I don't want to be complacent. I don't want to be complacent in this. Complacency is actually defined as a smug satisfaction with one's achievements. 
a smug satisfaction with one's achievements. Not like, not like a, a good pride, but a, a bad kind of pride, just being smug about it. Complacency can be dangerous. So one of my favorite scriptures is in verse 12. It says, I haven't arrived. I, I'm not standing still. I'm not complacent. I'm pressing on. I'm pressing on. I've not yet arrived. I've not achieved all this yet. I'm pressing on. So we should be satisfied with what we have, definitely. But we should never be complacent about the glory of God. We never should be complacent about this. Maybe one of the biggest dangers in the church world today is that people have become spiritually complacent. We're just good. I've seen it over and over. Hey, I said the prayer. My life is right. I'm going to heaven. I'm good. That's complacency. And that takes you out of the mission of Jesus every time. Because we grow, when we grow spiritually complacent, we take ourselves off the mission of Jesus. Complacency leads to an inward focus that results in less and less love for our neighbor. And we've been praying, God, give us more and more love for our neighbor. And where we're missing it, God, help us to not miss it there anymore. So Paul's in prison, chained to a Roman soldier, and he says, I'm pressing on. I love that. <laughs> I'm writing this letter, chained to this soldier over here. I'm pressing on. I'm going on. You can lock me up, but you can't shut me up. As long as I got a voice, or Paul's like, as long as I got pen and paper, I'm pressing on. I want to be like that. I want to be one that's just pressing on. Because when you've experienced what I've experienced, Paul is saying, when you experience what I've experienced, you can't be complacent. You're going to be satisfied with what you have, but you're never, with, you're never satisfied with what you've done. It's not like, oh, i got to do more for Jesus. No, it's like, I'm not standing still. I'm pressing on. I'm pressing on. I press on. And I, I don't have it all figured out yet. And I, I quote that from Paul all the time. I've not yet arrived. It's so true. But I press on. And think of ourselves. Maybe you could say, well, I, just, but I would, but I just got this one more thing I'm still struggling with. Press on. Well, it sounds good, but I'm just so tired. Press on. But this is mine, y'all. Church planting is hard. Press on. Press on. If you're not dead, you're not done. Press on. A while back, not too long ago, actually, I was riding the car with the kids, and uh, one of my great joys as a father is to teach them about the the wonderful part of life that is riding down the road with the windows down and the music turned up a little bit. You guys know what I'm talking about. And uh, we were riding down the road, and, and it was, I've done this enough so that now they begin to ask sometimes. And they said, Daddy, can we have windows down? It's a nice day. It's about 80 degrees. Yeah, windows down. Windows come down. That means you've got to turn the music up, Daddy. Okay. All right, stop. Collaborate and listen. Ice was back. That's right. We were, we were driving the minivan, rocking vanilla ice. Yes, we were. We it cranked up with this a little bit loud enough for somebody to hear it on the outside. Not blow, blowing it out. But I'm sitting there thinking, it's like, this is, this is a, like, you know, we use the word, this is like a vibe or this is a mood, right? This is, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you just feel this, this feeling when the windows are down. You just you turn up the knob a little bit. And in that moment, guys, I seriously felt the Spirit of God say to me, hey, Stephen, that's what I want you to do with Awakened Church. I want you to put the windows down, turn up the knob a little bit. 
Not talking about getting, getting like extra loud with the music and, and screaming your message out, but turn the knob up. You know what I mean, right? Like, I want this feeling. Like, I want to stay in this. Like, I could just drive all day with the windows down and the music's just right. I could just go on and on. Just drive. Nowhere to even go. Just drive. Right? He's like, that's what I want to wake in church to be like. Like, you just feel it. Like, like somebody comes in and they're like, oh, I want to stay in this. He's like, what you got to do is just turn the knob up a little bit. Whatever that means for you. Talk to Zach. Whatever that means for the, for the worship, do it. Whatever it means for the sermons. Whatever it means for, for, NS, for the students that are going to be coming from NSU. Whatever it means for the hype team or, what, or the children's ministry or the youth ministry. Come on, guys. I mean, whatever it means, turn the knob up and enjoy this ride. Because this ride is, is uh, a ride where this is what it means to be for me. Like, this is what pressing on means. You enjoy it. So God places others in our lives to give us a new perspective so we can be more like Jesus. And we need to all take a next step. And as I said this last week, I'll just say it again. Check yourself um, instead of thinking about somebody else, like somebody else, what they need to do, what they need to think, what they need to work on. Check yourself first. Maybe deal with any legalism that maybe you have or maybe any distractions or maybe any complacency in your life. And just deal with that in prayer. And say, you know what, God, I'm gonna, I need to, I need to, I got this distraction, or I've been complacent in this area, or I'm realizing that this attitude I've had has been a really legalistic attitude about something. And I need, I need you, God, to help me not just see it, but do something about it. And then I would say a next step that goes with that is accountability. Because we all need to have at least a person, if not a couple of persons in our lives for accountability. I do. I have a couple of guys I meet with once a month, and which it's straight up accountability. There's no, we don't, there's no hidden stuff. We just talk about it the way it is. We all need that in our lives. So I would say take the next step, whatever that is for you. Let's pray. God, help us uh, continue just to see these things, Lord. Maybe it's uh, the danger of legalism or the danger of of distractions or the dangers of complacency but lord we're all prone to have blind spots and lord, my prayer this morning has been that that your holy spirit and your word this this ancient letter have helped us to see maybe some of our own blind spots as as people as individuals and as a church as a as a as a little baby church plant or we still have blind spots and we thank you lord that you help us to see the dangers of some areas so that we can walk in in faith and in truth, uh, the path you have for us. So God, I pray that you would uh, bring us into a place of, of accountability. That each one of us, Lord, would have that person or that, that small group of people in our lives, Lord, that we could go to and say, hey, I've been, I've been really struggling. I've got this, this attitude, and it's just not right. And I want to give you permission to ask me how I'm doing with it. Or I've been, I've, been, I've been doing this thing and it's a habit and I want to stop, but I just can't. And I, and I, and I know I can with the power of Jesus Christ because he says I can. He can do it through me and in me. But I just want you to hold me accountable and ask me how I'm doing with that. Whatever it is, Lord, we need, we need you and we need others in our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that you place people in our lives. You place the scripture in our lives. You place your Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can walk with you and for you. Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Awaken Natchitoches podcast. It's our hope that you have been encouraged by today's message. 
Find out more about Awaken Church at awakenla.church or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Awaken Church LA.